choices. Choices. We all make choices. You choose. I choose. Some of the choices we make have a long-term effect in our lives. They may set the course for a lifetime. What are you going to be when you grow up? You choose. What schooling or training do you plan to take? You choose. Where are you going to school? You choose. What occupation are you pursuing? You choose. Who are you going to marry? You choose. Of course, she has to say yes. That's true, too. Where are you going to live? You choose. What are your priorities, your goals and ambitions? How many children are you planning to have? You choose, or your spouse may choose for you. When are you going to retire? You choose. Choices. His name was Larry Waters. Larry lived in Los Angeles, and his boyhood dream was to fly. So when he graduated from high school, Larry joined the Air Force in hopes of becoming a pilot. Unfortunately, poor eyesight disqualified him. And when he was finally discharged, he had to satisfy himself with watching jets fly over his backyard. One day, Larry had a bright idea. He decided to fly. He went to the local Army-Navy surplus store and purchased 45 weather balloons and several tanks of helium. The weather balloons, when fully inflated, would measure more than four feet across. Back home, Larry securely strapped the balloons to his sturdy lawn chair. He climbed on for a test while it was still only a few feet above the ground. And satisfied it would work, Larry packed several sandwiches and a six-pack of Miller Lite. He loaded his pellet gun, figuring he could pop a few balloons when it came time to descend, and went back to the floating lawn chair. He tied himself in along with a pellet gun and provisions. Larry's plan was to lazily float up to a height of about 30 feet above his backyard after severing the anchor, and in a few hours, he would come back down. Things didn't quite work out that way. When he cut the cord anchoring the lawn chair to his Jeep, he didn't float lazily up to 30 feet or so. Instead, he streaked into the LA sky as if shot from the cannon. He didn't level off at 30 feet, nor did he level off at 100 feet. After climbing and climbing, he leveled off at 11,000 feet. At that height, he couldn't risk shooting any of the balloons lest he unbalance the load and really find himself in trouble. So he stayed there, drifting, cold and frightened for more than 14 hours. Then he really got in trouble. He found himself drifting into the primary approach corridor of Los Angeles International Airport. A United pilot first spotted Larry. He radioed the tower, describing him passing a guy in a lawn chair with a gun. <laughs> Radar confirmed the existence of an object floating at about 11,000 feet above the airport. LAX emergency procedure swung into full alert, and a helicopter was dispatched to investigate. Well, LAX, as, as you know, is right on the ocean, and night was falling, and the, the offshore breeze began to flow, and it carried Larry out towards the sea with a helicopter in hot pursuit. Several miles out, the helicopter caught up with Larry, and once the crew realized and established that Larry was not dangerous, 
They attempted to close in for a rescue, but the draft from the blades would push Larry away whenever they got close. Finally, the helicopter ascended to a position several hundred feet above Larry and lowered a rescue line. So Larry snagged the line and was hauled back to shore, a difficult maneuver that was flawlessly executed by the helicopter crew. As soon as Larry was hauled back to Earth, he was arrested by waiting members of the LAPD for violating LAX airspace. As he was led away in handcuffs, a reporter dispatched to cover the daring rescue asked why he had done it. And Larry stopped, turned, and replied nonchalantly, a man can't just sit around. He was the 1997 Darwin Award winner. That has to do with some kind of intelligence. I'll tell about that later. <laughs> choice. Choose. I choose. We all make choices and we all choose. And today we're going to talk about the most important choice you and I can ever make. Because the consequences of this choice will last forever. They'll last forever. Today you choose. I'd like you to turn with me to Joshua, the 24th chapter. Joshua 24, we're going to read the first 15 verses. It's on page 188 in the Bible in the rack in front of you if you want to follow along there. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He, he summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought, I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried out to the Lord for help, and he put, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw them with your own eyes and what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you, but I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, Hittites, the Girgashites, Hivites, Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers, worship beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers served before, beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. 
You choose. We're going to look at three major themes today in this passage. This is our, our last message in the book of Joshua as we finish Joshua today. And we're going to talk about what it means to choose to stand, choose to stand as we make choices. Joshua begins his final words to the people of Israel with Roman numeral one, with recollection, recollection. Again, a call to remember the past acts of God. By the way, let me, let me just say something about taking notes. Um, if you like taking notes, awesome. Some people, if you take notes, you can't listen. Judy, if, Judy says when she was in school, if she had to take notes, she'd, she'd lose the, the place where they were. And so she would just listen. And so we provide the notes so you can fill them in and do that. Um, I'm not going to think you're not as spiritual as other people if you're not taking notes, okay? Some people just work better just listening, just so you know, okay? The notes are kind of a courtesy for those that want that. Okay, so Roman numeral one. We're back to one. A call to remember the past acts of God. You choose. We choose to remember and to recall. The God who is calling the people to make a choice is, is not a God who is isolated or distant or unconcerned. He's a God who has shown, already shown, he interacts and intersects with his creation, his people, his called out ones. He's a God of action who, is, who has taken initiative on our behalf as well. In the first 13 verses, we read about God's actions, God being a God of actions. The first is letter A, the call in verse 3. God called Abraham and then led him and showed him where to go and what to do. When I look at that, I, I have to say all of us, all of us at one time in our personal story have been called of God. We've all been called of it. Now, he didn't email, he didn't text, he didn't message us, but God called us nonetheless in many unique and creative ways at different times. God calls each and every one of us. There, there was a time in each of our lives when we first sensed there was a God, that he was real, or we were taught that God existed. And that, that call, and I want you to think back a minute, when is the first time you were aware of a personal God? It might have been in Sunday school class when you were four. It could have been when you were older. It might have been as a teen somewhere. It could have been any number of times. But, but God at some point, and if he hasn't in the past, I hope he does today, showed us that he wanted to have a relationship with us, and he called us into relationship with us. Why does he do that? Because God is a searching, seeking God who somehow makes contact with each person at a different time and a different place. And I want you to just think a minute and say, when was the first time I sensed God, a real God, that God is real? And then each in a unique way, in a personal way, we've become to know, if we've accepted Jesus, we've come to know Jesus and a, a God through his son Jesus. So God called you and God drew you. And stop for a, remember, for a while, just stop and remember. It's important that we remember, when did I receive that call, that first contact from this God? When did that happen? Do you remember it? After his call is the plan, let her be the plan. God had a plan for this family who became a nation and included a journey. And the journey didn't always make sense. I mean, when Abraham was called, he said, leave your place and go. And he said, I'll tell you where you're going. He said, I want to know now. No, God said, I'm not going to tell you. So he said, so he left everything and he went on this journey by faith, believing that God had a plan. Okay, God always has a plan. And it included, his family included a, a journey down to Egypt because they were going to starve to death where they were. 
and 400 years of slavery, and then 40 years in the desert. There, there was a plan and a purpose. There was a journey they were on. God had a plan for his people. When did God reveal and begin to reveal his plan for you, your life, your life? The, the reason you were created, you're probably saying, I'm still wondering. That's okay. Still wondering, what's, what's the plan? What is God's plan? What, why was I created? Some really struggle with this concept. And sometimes it's very difficult to see God's plan for us individually. Sometimes other people can see it better. But difficult to see God's plan at the time and, and in the present. Obviously, life only makes sense when you look at it backwards, but we have to live it forwards, and sometimes we struggle with that. And when we look back, it's important that we can remember and see how God has led us, how he has provided for us, he has fulfilled his promises to us, how he's loved us, how he's preserved us, how he's taking care of us each step of the way. To personalize this, that this wasn't just for the nation of Israel, this plan is for you. It's not an accident that you are here today. No accident. God has a plan for you. Verses 3 and 4 show God, Joshua's remembrance of God's plan for Israel, fulfilled promises, blessings, supernatural provision, preservation, all of those things. See, God has a plan for each and every one of us. Then we get to letter C. He said, I want you to remember the deliverance. Verses 5 and 6 talks about deliverance. God led them out of Egypt from slavery and from their enemies, seeking to kill them. And when, when we look back on our lives, and I want us to personalize this, we can see God's deliverance for each and every one of us. God's hand of deliverance. He delivers us from sin, from temptation. He's delivered many of us from making poor choices, from Satan's power. It's just there are so many things that God delivers us from, and it's important for us to recollect and go back and say, oh, I need to remember what God has done. Remember. And then the victories in, in, in letter D, the victory. Verses 8, 11, and 12 talk about these great victories, the, the victories that God won for them, the victory over the Amorites, the Jericho, over the five tribes of, of Canaan. And this, this can denote, if we apply this personally, this can denote the spiritual battles that we fight and we win, that God actually gives us victories. In verse 12, it says, I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So it was God, it was God who won the victory for them. Now, sometimes we say, wow, I, I did well on that situation, or I won that. No, God wins the victories for us. It's God winning the victories. We're, we're going to start next Sunday, we're going we're to start a series called Invisible. Uh, a series on spiritual warfare. It's not going to be spooky. It's not going to be crazy or weird. Very practical about there's a battle going on in the heavenlies. There's something going on, and, and we see signs of it. We see the evil. It, it transcends or it manifests itself in the physical realm, but there's a battle going on in the spiritual, and we must understand it. It's going to be at least five-week series on spiritual warfare. Understanding the nature and how we fight and how we perceive, how do we, how do we navigate this thing? Spiritual warfare. We've talked a lot about victory in Joshua. And of course, when Jesus died and was, was resurrected, we got the ultimate victory, 
ultimate victory, supernatural victory. Fourth in recollection are blessings in verse 10. This is amazing when he talks about the blessings in verse 10. He said, I would not listen to Balaam. He tried to, tried to curse you, and you, I would bless you and bless you and bless you. People attempted to curse Israel, but could only bless them. And God provides that blessing for us. And people may try to diss us and, and do us harm and whatever, but God is the one who, who brings out that, those blessings. And the, then letter F, verse 13, possession. Possession. I love this verse. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. You live in them and eat from the vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. God gave his people a possession, a land that was already established, land they had not labored on, cities they had not built, houses in, in the cities, vineyards and olive groves they had not planted. All free gifts, all possessions. And the question I have for you and me today is what do we have that we've earned? What do we have that we've earned? That's, that's always a question. Earned. All God's gifts are freely given to us. We, we can't earn them. We can't earn them. This also talks about the spiritual blessings, all given freely and not earned. Possessed because Jesus won the victory over our enemy, Satan. Now, all this was a, the work of a God of action. It was the call, the plan, the deliverance, the victory, the blessings, and the possessions. Because God... Acts. God acts. God's a God of action. He's a God who pursues us. This whole chapter is full of verbs or action words. I took, I called, I gave, I sent, I put, I made, I plagued, I brought you out. See, our God is a God of action. He's not this passive person up there that just kind of got the world going and said, good luck, y'all. I hope you, I hope you make it. No, he's a God of action who injects himself in our lives and relates to us and blesses us, gives us possession, acts on our behalf. And against this backdrop of a God who acts, a God of interaction, God calls his people to choose. Okay? Here's God. These are God's actions. Now he says, you get to choose. You get to choose. And the first choice given to God's people was, and it's a word we don't use very often, but it's, it's renunciation. Renunciation. Put away false gods. This is Roman numeral two. Put away false gods. Put away false gods. Some of God's people had been faithful. Many had not been. And Joshua said, the time is now. You get to choose. Even though they occupied the land of Canaan, the conquest was not complete. In fact, when you go on to the book of Judges, which we're not going to do, if you want to read an interesting book, go on to the next book in the book of Judges, and it's interesting to see what happened to the nation. Even though they occupied the land and the conquest is not complete, there was a spiritual unsettledness that marked the lives of these people. They, they, there was a double-mindedness. There was a restlessness and indecision. Just as today, people's, people of God are, are, are restless. We're double-minded. We're indecisive. And God calls on us to move beyond that, to make clear-cut decisions for God. Clear-cut decisions. See, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a movement, not a monument. We're to be a, a movement, not a monument. We don't just stay in buildings and this is where we're at, the church. This is the Wesleyan church. No, no. 
We are to be a movement, and that movement has to be out there somewhere. We come together once a week, but the movement is out there, not here. And so Joshua begins this admonition with a therefore. Whenever you see therefore, always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Okay. And he said something, so there's something that's, that's following. He said, therefore, he says, fear the Lord in verse 14. In other words, hold God in respect, hold him in awe. That the word we use a lot, and we probably overuse it now, is awesome. Okay? We use awesome. You know, it's just a great, great word, awesome. And it means evoking awe. But there, there's, there tends to be a casualness with which we approach God. See, God is an awesome God. Awesome. Evoking awe. We think, well, he's my buddy. He's my friend. God is love and, you know, whatever. Yes, God is love, but he's not some kind of mystical teddy bear we squeeze each night that makes us feel good. Our God is an awesome God. When he says fear the Lord, doesn't mean we're afraid of him, but it means with an incredible awe and respect. Donald McCullough in the book The Trivialization of God writes, because we do not easily escape the thought patterns of our culture, this ethos of control and explanation may very well influence our view of God, tempting us to choose for ourselves a controllable God. Oh, we can manage him. A God who will not threaten our growing sense of mastery over the world. Such a God inspires no awe, of course, but neither does it threaten our security. See, we, like, we kind of want to be able to control this God. It's not going to work. It says Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Fear him, healthy respect. Then he says, serve him in sincerity and truth or in faithfulness. God is not here to serve us. We are here to serve God. Without hypocrisy and simplicity in truth and heart. Be real and be authentic as in any other kind of relationship. Now, I don't know if you've had conversations with God like I have. Um, when I'm mad or frustrated or upset with God, um, you know, I, just, I tell him because he knows anyway. So I might as well just tell him and he hasn't struck me dead yet. Okay? But having an authentic relationship where you can actually express your feelings and express your emotions, that you can actually talk to him, be, be genuine, be real. And, and yes, we're in fear and awe of him, but we have sincerity and truth means we have authenticity. We, we've all had relationships over our lives that we're not authentic and we're just kind of fake and yeah, they're, they're acting nice, but they really don't care. You know, we have all those things. Well, God is calling us to a relationship with the sincerity and truth where we are authentic. And just let your hair down. There have been times I had to go out in the countryside where nobody, and just kind of vent and yell. Okay, that's fine. Nobody else would understand, but God does. He, again, he didn't strike me dead, but frustration, anger, whatever. F fear him in sincerity and truth. Relate to him that way. And then he says, put away other gods, verses 14 to 15. Verses 14 to 15 says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourself this day what you're going to do. Back then, the, the, the gods were graven images and idols, and they had poles, and they had demonic spirits. They had occultic practices with child sacrifices and temple sex. They had all kinds of things going on back then. Those are their gods. What are our gods today? 
I believe someday in our generation, we're going to be forced to choose between those gods and the real God. Choosing between things that we consider so important and that some will be unwilling to give up for their faith in Jesus. As long as we don't have to choose, we're fine. But what if we do, what if we do have to make a choice? Today, it's believe in Jesus and be prosperous. You just do well. He brings all the blessings. Well, he can prosper us, but what are our gods today? What are our gods? Um, the Colson Center for Worldview offers a course entitled Gods of Our Age. So if you want to go on Colson Center for Worldview, um, it's a whole course on that. And I, he lists four. He lists there are four main gods in America, sex, the state, science, and stuff. Okay. If you want to study that, go on that site. I want to expand to just name a few gods that I'm aware of that all of us seem to wrestle with. All of us seem. These are, these are things that are very important to us. Number one is comfort or ease. Comfort or ease. We like central heating and cooling, padded furniture, wall-to-wall -wall carpet, air beds and foam beds. Is there anything wrong with being comfortable? No. But does it come between God and me? Is that more important than God? Don't take away my comforts. Or convenience. We base our lives on convenience. Where we live, where we shop, where our kids attend school, our schedule. Again, is there anything wrong with convenience? No, as long as it's not more important than God. Don't take away my conveniences. Or pleasure, whatever pleases me. Is there anything wrong with healthy pleasure? There's nothing wrong with a great steak or a broth or cappuccino, mocha, or latte, okay? They're, those are all good pleasures. But can it come between God and me? Is it a pleasure that I count as so important? How about gratification, indulgence, appetites, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, gluttony, food and drink, sex, physical appetite, sensual pleasures. Again, God created all the desires that we have and intends them to be expressed in the proper godly context. That's one of the, one of the, one of the dangers of asceticism, which should deny all, your, deny all your pleasures and impulses. Well, God created those impulses and desires in us, hunger and the desire for physical gratification, all that's there. But he also gave parameters under which those are to be expressed, and it's healthy in his parameters. Marriage for a sexual relationship. You know, you can, you can name all of those things. God has set up those parameters. But those desires, gratification, does it come between me and God? How about recreation? The good life, camping, hiking, fishing, hunting, water skiing, boating, sailing, softball, bowling, golfing. Always a million things to do. You know, there's nothing wrong with recreation. It's healthy. It's good. But does recreation come between me and God? Now, when he talks about renouncing as God, it's not renouncing the activity, but God's as to level of importance, how important it is it. Is it. So, so when you're talking about recreation and those kinds of things, those are not uh, bad. It's just as, as level of importance, is it more important than God? Closely related, of course, is diversion or escape. Video games, entertainment, movies, theater, ballet, concerts, sport events, football, basketball, baseball, soccer, hockey, golf. Drugs, alcohol, diversion or escapism. Do my diversions come between God and me? Number seven, tradition. 
To some, tradition is more important than innovation. The past is more important than the present or future. God is a God of change. God is a God of innovation. God is a God of the new. God is a God of growth. And typically, the church is especially guilty of worshiping the God of tradition. We love tradition. And you know, there's some great traditions. But is a tradition more important to me than God? Number eight, man or humanism. Man in a generic sense. We're in a man-centered universe. Some people believe all was created by man and for man. Man is basically good, and man is getting better all the time. Seriously? Have you looked at the news recently? We just celebrated D-Day, which was one of the most horrific battles of history to fight the most horrific man who tried to establish a world government. Nazi Germany. Yeah. Mankind, they worship the creature rather than the creator. Then there's woman or feminism, worshiping the creature instead of the creator. And you know what? You can, you can praise that a clay pot. You can look at a clay pot that's beautifully done, whatever it might be. You can praise the clay pot all you want to, but the true praise goes to the artist who made the clay pot. See, we elevate, we elevate the creation above the creator. It's not that we shouldn't take, uh, take care of the environment, but, but we don't worship creation. We worship the creator who made the environment. See, the clay pot didn't have anything to say about how beautiful they are. Say, some, say to someone next to, next to you, that's a nice pot you got there. Just say that. Go ahead, turn, just say that. Say a nice pot there. Okay. Okay. Don't get carried away. Okay. Then there's self, number 10, self-actualization, fulfillment, obsession with me, narcissism, obsession with, with self as opposed to others. One of the biggest issues in, in the abortion controversy is called the right of a woman to choose what she does with her own body. And that is true. However, when a woman is with child or pregnant, she does not have the right to choose to destroy the other person's body, the baby. Total self-centeredness and selfishness. Ambition or success, number 11. Goals, obsessed with success. Possession or stuff, anything that possesses us. Number 13 is Satan. Now, Satanism is now mainstream. It's acceptable. Occultism, demon worship, tarot cards, fortune telling, horoscope reading, Wiccans, all of these are worshiping Satan. Outright Satan worship. There, there are people out, you can, I'm sure you can find them around, that just, they just worship Satan. They go to the satanic church, whatever, and they have all kinds of theories about how that works, but they worship Satan. And we can also talk about Christians that are well-meaning though they, they be, they see demons everywhere, talk about demons all the time, the devil all the time. If they spend more time thinking and talking about the devil than God, then we got a problem. You don't want to give the devil too much attention. That's When we go into spiritual warfare, we're going to be talking about the devil, but we're going to be talking about what God has done. We're not going to obsess with demons or the devil or bad things. We're going to obsess with the power of God. Just, just, just saying that. The gods of America, you choose. What are we going to do with them? He says, put these gods away. He said, renounce those gods. And number three, he says, I want you to renew your relationship. Renew your relationship. 
There's renunciation here is renewing our relationship. You choose. You choose. Dr. Graham Scroge said, all Christians have eternal life. Not all Christians have abundant life. Let me say that again. All Christians have eternal life. Not all Christians have abundant life. Ellen Redpath wrote, there can be life without health. There can be movement without any progress. There may be war but defeat. We may serve but never succeed. We may try but never triumph. The difference all along the line is the difference between possessing life and experiencing life more abundant. This abundant life is simply the fullness of life in Jesus Christ, made possible by his death and resurrection, made real by the incoming of his Holy Spirit. That is abundant life. The trouble with so many of us is that we are on the right side of Easter, but the wrong side of Pentecost. The right side of pardon, but the wrong side of power. We're justified, but not sanctified. It's not enough to say we're forgiven. We are called unto holiness. It's called the exchanged life, the exchanged life. It's no more I, but Christ. You choose, you choose. Four guidelines, very quickly, four guidelines to making a firm choice. Number one, quit straddling the fence. Quit straddling the fence. We talked about compromise last week. Compromise and the sequence of compromise. James 4, 4 says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? It equals enmity with God. And in reality, we really can't straddle the fence. We just think we are. But if we're not totally sold out to the one and only God, we're on the other side. And lots of warnings in the scriptures about trying to straddle the fence and where we are. Warning about wheat and tares and sheep and goats. Don't try to straddle the fence. Second choice, don't be pushed around. Ephesians 6.10 says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the, his mighty power. You exert the influence, you choose. Don't let anybody else choose for you. We talk a lot about peer pressure today, peer pressure. And it's not just for teens and young people. Peer pressure is part of our everyday adult life as well. Friends and companions, people we work with, people we live with. You choose. Don't be pushed around. It takes courage. It takes courage. Number three, go public with your faith. Don't hide your light under a bush. A, a light set on a hill cannot be hidden. Matt, Matthew 10, 32, 33, Jesus said, Whoever acknowledges me is me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Don't hide it. Go public with your faith. It's your choice. It's your choice. And the fourth guideline, make the choice as a whole family. Make the choice as a whole family. Verse 15, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable for you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Run to win, choose. How can I do all this? How can I choose? The same God who brought Israel to where she was is the same God who's called you and given you a plan for your life. He gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us. I can renounce false gods and I can choose the real God through his power, his power. Choose for yourselves. I want to conclude by looking at Deuteronomy 30. 
Just a few verses in Deuteronomy 30. Verses 14 to 20. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering. But if your heart turns away and you were not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. And that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose to stand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that you don't hide the details and all the wrestling that uh, these people went with and, and had way back then. They dealt with all kinds of issues that we deal with today. And I just pray, Lord, that you, by your grace and your strength, would help us in our choices. You would give us strength to stand. God, we acknowledge we don't have the ability in ourselves. It's your Holy Spirit in us that does that. And I pray that you, by your grace, would give us that strength as we choose to stand. In Jesus' name, amen.